Welcome to the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. I'm Kara Hansel-Kehan. Today we'll discuss a new study by Bikolki et al. titled, Blood Pressure and Muscle Sympathetic Nerve Activity Are Associated with Trait Anxiety in Humans. This article was published February 17, 2023. Joining us today are host Dr. Megan Wenner, first author Dr. Jeremy Bigalki, and expert Dr. Jody Greeny. Let's get started. Megan? Thanks, Kara. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental health issue in the U.S. and can interfere with daily activities, including work and social interaction. Aside from the daily stress that this can cause, it has become increasingly evident that anxiety is associated with several negative health outcomes, such as hypertension, and also increases the risk of future cardiovascular disease. The sympathetic nervous system is crucial to blood pressure regulation, and heightened sympathoexcitation has been demonstrated previously in patients with general anxiety disorder, as well as PTSD. But to date, it is unclear if resting sympathetic nerve activity is augmented in adults with anxiety. Today, we'll discuss a recent study by Bagalki and colleagues, which examined the association between trait anxiety, blood pressure, and resting muscle sympathetic nerve activity. Jeremy, congratulations on a great study and paper. This is the first paper to leverage a large data set presenting blood pressure and muscle sympathetic nerve activity related to trait anxiety in 88 young adults. And of course, doing MSNA in 88 adults is no easy task. Can you summarize your study and the main findings? Yeah, so first of all, um, thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here. Our lab has been invested in the study of mental stress and sympathetic reactivity for quite some time. However, we've recently become more interested in the assessment of other more long-term factors that may influence sympathetic activity, such as chronic anxiety. And as you mentioned, evidence has accumulated pointing to a relationship between chronic anxiety and cardiovascular disease. However, many studies to date performed in clinical populations, such as panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, have largely found unchanged resting sympathetic outflow. And this led us to wonder if maybe we're missing something in these studies to date. Many of these studies were performed in smaller clinical sample populations. And when using subjective measures of anxiety and psychological uh, distress, it may be necessary to sort of bump up that sample size in order to achieve an adequate power to meaningfully assess those subtle interactions between psychological and physiological characteristics, such as sympathetic outflow and blood pressure. And additionally, anxiety is often viewed as a, as a dichotomous variable. So an individual is either diagnosed with an anxiety disorder or they are not. And I think this, this sort of leaves out a lot of people who may experience equally impactful subclinical anxiety symptoms. So for the current data set, we combined uh, resources with two other universities, including Dr. John DeRocher at Purdue Northwest and Dr. Amanda Keller-Ross at the University of Minnesota. And we use the Spielberger Trait Anxiety Inventory, which denotes an individual's propensity for anxiousness. And this survey asks participants to rate how they generally feel uh, on a scale from almost never to always. And it consists of statements such as, I am a steady person, um, I am cool, calm, and collected. And we use this metric, one, because it was common across our laboratory, so it was easy to combine those resources, and two, because it gave us an estimate of an individual's propensity for anxiousness um, along a spectrum and gave us an idea of their general levels of, of, of essentially sensitivity to anxiety. 
And additionally, in each of these ADA participants, we performed three seated blood pressures, which we used to provide a clinically relevant uh, cardiovascular measure of, of just seated resting blood pressure. And what really sets this data set apart is the directly recorded muscle sympathetic nerve activity in all participants in included within the study in tandem with that blood pressure assessment. And what we found was in line with our hypothesis, which as a scientist is always great to see, but doesn't always happen. <laughs> um, but basically when controlling for a few key characteristics like age and sex, um, which impact cardiovascular function, we found that trade anxiety was associated with both blood pressure and sympathetic outflow at rest offering evidence of a modest independent relationship between anxiety symptom severity and resting sympathetic outflow in otherwise young, healthy adults, and potentially highlighting a, a mechanism whereby anxiety relates to that, that, that development of cardiovascular disease uh, that we see in larger epidemiological studies. Great. Thanks so much, Jeremy. You also assessed sympathetic bare reflex sensitivity, but that was not related to treat anxiety. Could you briefly touch on what you think maybe some of the possible mechanisms involved in the relationships between anxiety, blood pressure, and NSNA? Absolutely. So we were interested in assessing sympathetic baroreflex sensitivity because we were curious if cardiovascular regulation via the sympathetic nervous system was altered in this population of healthy young adults as a function of trade anxiety. Um, previous work in panic disorder has shown that baroreflex sensitivity is related to trade anxiety. However, within the current data set, we found uh, no association between the two. And instead, we saw that tandem increase in both sympathetic activity and blood pressure. And to us, this sort of indicates a, a potential baroreflex resetting to a, a heightened blood pressure operating point. And this is likely mediated through central mechanisms. Uh, Roger Dampney has a series of papers and reviews discussing this topic. And some potential central mediators include brain areas such as the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, which project to areas within the hypothalamus, which can then directly and indirectly impact sympathetic outflow to the periphery. Interestingly, some research out of Sonia Bishop's laboratory has shown that individuals with heightened trait anxiety have hypoactivity of the prefrontal cortex and hyperactivity of limbic regions such as the amygdala supporting a potential role for these regions in that altered baseline sympathetic outflow observed in the current study. There's further evidence, though, of what would be referred to as bottom-up signaling, so essentially an offshoot of the James Lang theory of emotion, whereby bodily processes and physiological and physical hyperarousal, like increased heart rate, blood pressure, among other, other bodily processes, precede the feeling of emotion. This was recently shown in a study in individuals with generalized anxiety disorder, whereby beta adrenergic peripheral stimulation using isoproteranol evoked a greater sense of cardiorespiratory effort and also increased anxiety in those individuals with generalized anxiety disorder, indicating that those peripheral sensations actually led to those feelings of anxiousness. And this was also very recently studied in uh, a paper that was just put out in Nature that showed in a mouse model uh, evoked tachycardia preceded and, and caused or elicited uh, anxiety-like behavior within this, this mouse model. So both of these studies together kind of support this bottom-up signaling within the, the, the field of anxiety and, and emotional regulation. Now, in some, it's likely that there may be some sort of a bidirectional relationship between these central and peripheral structures, which leads to these longer-term increases in blood pressure and sympathetic activity that we, we see in the current study. 
Um, but I want to be really careful not to speculate too much, given, given the lack of directionality within our study. But to me, this is a really exciting area of future research to determine the directionality of that relationship to really decipher how anxiety impacts cardiovascular disease through regulation of, of the sympathetic nervous system. That's really fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. Jody. You've studied sympathetic regulation of blood pressure and more recently have a series of studies in young adults with depression. Although anxiety and depression are two different types of mood disorders, they can occur simultaneously and have overlapping symptoms. Can you tell us your impressions of this study and how these data contribute to our understanding of the cardiovascular consequences of anxiety and mood disorders or mental health as a whole? And what stood out to you in this paper that was particularly impactful? Yeah, so I really liked this study. I thought it was, I mean, certainly in line with some of the things that I've been thinking about and we've been working on in our own lab. I'm sure Jeremy and I can commiserate over what it's like to collect good quality microneurographic recordings in dozens and dozens of people. That's what we're doing as well. It's hard on the front end, and I would say also an analytical quagmire. I mean, my personal opinion is that's the way the field needs to move to kind of get away from these N equals 12, N equals 14 studies of like two distinct groups um, without thinking about people that are maybe in the middle or this gray zone. And I, I think a particular strength is that that directive is really coming from the National Institute of Mental Health, like thinking about mental illness across a spectrum of severity of symptoms is kind of like. The, the core tenant of the research domain criteria, which is, kind again, like I said now, probably about a decade old, but a real push to also consider these diseases as a spectrum instead of just a, a binary state of either diagnosis versus not. So I, so I think that's kind of really what, what Jeremy and his co-authors were, were thinking about in this study, at least. I, I also think it's important that most of the individuals that were included, I would call them young adults, right? I mean, certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but in that 18 to 30 year old age range. And that really, in my opinion, at least these early changes in sympathetic regulation of blood pressure are, are problematic. I mean, it sets these individuals up for other cardiovascular disease related comorbidities and poorer cardiovascular like risk profile trajectories over the course of a lifetime. So I think that's also something that is, is fairly striking from this work. Thanks so much, Jody, for that insight. The COVID-19 pandemic has severely impacted our society, and we continue to see this impact today, and we'll likely be dealing with this ramifications for years to come. So I think this question is probably very relevant following up on your previous point. One startling statistic that um, emerged from the World Health Organization was that the global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased 25%, which is massive when you think of the scale. And we fully recognize that there's a mental health crisis and that this is particularly impacting younger adults. So what are your thoughts on these statistics and what does this mean for the health trajectory of these young adults struggling with anxiety and depression? Jeremy, I'll start with you. Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I can absolutely see this the the accuracy of those statistics. When you combine factors like social isolation, uh, the looming threat of infection, worry for loved ones, among other factors, this can absolutely lead to increased levels of anxiety and depression. You know, as as highlighted by that statistic, and within our own lab and among many others, we've we've actually reported on these increases in anxiety, and within our own laboratory. 
we, we actually report that these increases in anxiety are similarly associated with reduced perceived sleep quality. So kind of leading to this vicious cycle whereby increased anxiety may be impairing sleep, which then further exacerbates the increased anxiety and depression and so on. Um, in light of our recent findings in, in the current study and those of Jody with major depressive order, these large scale increases in anxiety and depression may harbor adverse effects on cardiovascular function on multiple different levels if they are not adequately assessed and mitigated. So given that the alterations observed as a function of anxiety proneness within the current study, it may be beneficial to view anxiety, again, like Jody said, along a spectrum and to note the significance of preclinical or subthreshold anxiety um, as a matter that may have great impacts on health. And as scientists and researchers, I really think it's our, our duty and our role to inform both clinicians as well as the general public of these associations that we're finding in order to increase awareness of the tangible effects of mental health on physiological outcomes and further accounting for changes in mental health and psychological characteristics within the field of physiology, I, I think is paramount moving forward. Um, as a society, I think we've, we've come a really long way kind of reducing the stigma surrounding mental health. And I think we're, we're a lot better at talking about it and, and, and its effects on other, other facets of life, uh, but there's still a lot more to be done regarding how best to test and treat mental health and its subsequent comorbidities. Great, thanks. Jody, let's bring you in. What are your thoughts on some of these statistics and how we as scientists and researchers can work with clinicians to manage this crisis moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I really think the statistics are pretty alarming and really upsetting as well, I think, uh, when, when you think about mental health. I've not done a lot of work in adults with anxiety disorders per se. I've obviously been in the realm of depression and other depressive or affective mood disorders. One thing that I'm wondering, I know this is going to be a little bit off target or maybe off a tangent from the question itself, but so we think a lot in our lab about like what stress is doing to these people. Like is we know that stress can precipitate symptoms of depression and anxiety in some individuals. And I spent a lot of time talking to one of my colleagues about the ways in which stress can be good for us. And I guess where that's where I'm going with feelings of anxiety, like in some ways, like heightened vigilance and, and being able to like respond quickly to your environment can be seen as like positives, right? And so I wonder, Jeremy, if your group has thought about that and kind of how do, how do you put that together with what you guys saw in this paper in terms of blood pressure and MSNA regulation? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good question. That's something that we're, we're actively interested in as well. Um, within the field of microneurography, oftentimes we use mental stressors, which are kind of cognitive tasks like mental arithmetic or the Stroop color word task and things along those lines. But recently we've kind of began to go down the route of anticipatory stress, because when you look across the spectrum of anxiety disorders, a large portion of those individuals are going to be you know, anticipating stressors before they actually arrive or before they're actually presented. So it's this, this anticipatory feeling of increased heart rate, you have an increased blood pressure. There's this, this idea, you know, that, that whatever this stress is coming might be uh, a challenge that can't be overcome essentially. And like you said, I do think that at a certain extent, it is good to have acute anxiety in the right setting. But if this, if this stress response is constantly active, and, and kind of geared towards a non-specific stress or threat, you know, I think that's when it becomes detrimental. And we've, we've shown with that, that study 
uh, looking at the true social stress test that even anticipatory stress alone has the ability to significantly increase blood pressure, significantly increase heart rate, but we did see a reduction in muscle sympathetic nerve activity. So baroreflex sensitivity was, was maintained or baroreflex uh, regulation was maintained. But again, that was in a group of, of healthy young adults. In a study by Seth Hulwerda and colleagues, they, they looked at this anticipatory stress model within generalized anxiety disorder. And they actually showed that, that those individuals who did have generalized anxiety had heightened sympathetic reactivity to anticipatory stress. So it's kind of flipping what we found on its head and, and, and showing that these individuals might have an exaggerated sympathetic response to this anticipatory stress. And if that is maintained over long periods of time, I think that could be leading to these associations that we're seeing here with sympathetic dominance and this, this heightened blood pressure and uh, baseline sympathetic outflow in the larger population. Very interesting. Thanks so much to both of you. Starting this past year, all manuscripts submitted to AJP Heart must include details on how sex as a biological variable was considered, reinforcing the journal's commitment to understanding sex differences in cardiovascular disease. Can you both briefly touch on sex differences related to mental health and cardiovascular control from your work and why this is such an important issue? Jeremy, let's start with you and your work uh, with the current study. So in general, females tend to report heightened levels of anxiety and anxiety disorder prevalence. So it may be sort of a sex-specific prevalence of those, of those disorders. And additionally, there are known uh, neurocardiovascular regulatory differences between premenopausal females and young males, like those who are studied in the current data set, where young me- females tend to show less sympathetic reliance, potentially through in- increased beta receptor-mediated vasodilation, which opposes that sympathetic vasoconstriction and may offer some protective cardiovascular benefits in premenopausal females. However, I believe it remains largely unknown if chronic anxiety, which is again more often reported by females, impacts these vascular benefits in a sex-dependent manner. While we included a, a decently sized population of females in the current study and monitored menstrual cycle to only study females in the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle to control for the known effects of sex hormones on baseline resting sympathetic outflow. After performing a analysis of the sensitivity of our, our model after, after data collection, we were not powered to assess sex differences due to the cross-sectional nature of the data and uh, the overall statistical design. However, we are continuing to track this in ongoing studies, and we, we're hoping to kind of bolster this sample size to be able to look at those sex-dependent effects but this is something that will be validated moving forward with, with the addition of that greater sample size. Great, thanks. Jody. what are your thoughts? Yeah, so just like with anxiety, depression seems to affect females more than males, at least according to prevalence estimates. Now, whether that truly reflects a, a sex difference in prevalence or females being more likely to identify as potentially having a, a mental health illness... I don't think we know. I think there's plenty of psychiatrists who should probably answer that question, not not me or Jeremy. I will say, I think it's a at least in the rodent models of depression that are out there in terms of sex differences, it's a little bit more clear. I'm not sure on the sympathetic blood pressure side of the equation, but certainly from vascular health, female rodents who develop a depressive phenotype exhibit more impaired behavioral changes. So like they become more depressed essentially, but they are relatively protected from a vascular health side of things. So they're more susceptible to depression, but their vasculature works better. And so they're, and that's in young mice or, or rodents. So like, 
how that then translates to the human i don't know does that change around the menopausal transition you know when when, when females have a dramatically increased risk of cardiovascular disease like i that's those are all questions that remain to be answered I will say that we get asked about sex differences all the time in, in the work in our lab. I, we've not done like specific sex differences related studies, although I will say that the participants that enroll in studies in our lab actually do reflect the prevalence estimates nationwide. Like we do see usually two females to one male. So that makes me feel pretty good. And that's kind of how we've been thinking about things moving forward. Sounds like there's lots more work to be done and some potential collaborations or, or grant ideas we can come up with from this uh, conversation. Are there any other aspects that you would like to highlight that we haven't discussed today? Yeah, I just wanted to add a quick plug for the importance of collaborative research and partnerships, you know, moving forward. So this, this data collection would not have been possible without Drs. John DeRocher and Dr. Amanda Keller-Ross. And this collaboration between universities allowed a sample size sufficient to investigate these, these associations between subjective psychological characteristics and physiological outcomes. And additionally, as I've noted, mental health and psychological characteristics are more readily accepted today as key determinants of health. And while as physiologists, we often, uh, often account for things like physical activity, caffeine intake, um, among other factors, I still think mental health and psychological characteristics are one of those things that's still lagging behind a little bit. So I think moving forward, you know, ultimately perception and self-reported characteristics are unique to humans. So putting time towards the development of best practices, you know, which might include a standardized battery of quick uh, subjective assessments uh, would be beneficial to facilitate a, a more integrative multi-domain approach to human health and well-being. Thanks, Jeremy and Jody, for joining us and discussing this important work. Looking forward to much more to come to answer these important questions. Back to you, Kara. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Zerk podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.